Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz, back with the usual crew here today. We've also got our video recorders running today, so actually, you're going to be able to catch a bit of Nerd Alert on the YouTubes, should you so desire to look at us while we talk about things, which is difficult with a podcast. James Wong is down there with a full-face helmet on. Uh, That's a little bit of... uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Am, am I being am I being overly cautious? Is it a am I am I foreshadowing? <laughs> foreshadowing. That's the word I'm looking for. It's a bit of foreshadowing, and what we're going to talk about in Nerd Alert later in the episode. We've also got Abby Mickey hanging out in Latvia. How are you, Abby? Good, good. It's um, it's real cold here now. Time to escape to Spain, I think. Yes, probably not a bad idea. Shoddy Dave, how cold is it for you? Pretty warm, actually. T- uh, heat is on 21.5 degrees today. Dan Cash, I know how cold it is here because we're in the same town. Uh, it's about to snow here, yes. unfortunately. Or fortunately. It is. It is not warm here. Let's move into today's episode. We do have a sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Noble Wheels. Noble recently launched a new set of road and gravel carbon rims that offer the same attention to detail as their mountain bike wheels. Whether you gravitate toward their road-optimized CR35 clincher rim or their gravel-focused hookless rim, you'll still be able to take on everything from bikepacking to breakaways. These new wheels are incredibly versatile with weight-saving front and rear-specific rim designs. Bonus, they come with a lifetime warranty. Love to hear that. As a special offer for Cycling Tips listeners, save 50 bucks on the wheels with code CYCLINGTIPS when you shop at noblewheels.com. That's N-O-B-L wheels.com until the end of November 2020. Get right on it. Thanks to Noble for sponsoring today's episode. All right. This is the first episode post 2020 bike racing season it was uh i was gonna say a long one but not really actually it it felt a little bit long i think for us for those of us working in the biz because we were dealing with multiple grand tours at one time and all sorts of overlap and just a million races going on but it's over now last weekend was the end of the racing season we're going to talk about the last races of the season including how the vuelta wrapped up uh the not Madrid Challenge, renamed the Madrid, the Madrid Challenge. We're also going to hear from Chloe Digert on her pretty awful injury at the World Championships and how she's already planning to return. And then finally, in today's Nerd Alert, uh, if you could see the screen right now, you could see that James is wearing a full-face helmet, and we're going to be talking about that. Safety first, but- Kaylee. Safety first for road bikes so we'll be getting into road full face helmets uh those of you who are you know very keen on road style make sure you stick around and bring some things to throw at your radio because you're not going to love the end of this podcast but let's get into the vuelta first so dane how did things wrap up over the weekend yeah, things were uh, pretty entertaining over the last, well, basically since we last did a podcast. It was a it was a great final week of the final Grand Tour of the year. I mean, things were close going into that last week. Uh, as we had kind of talked about on the show, 
Primus Roglic did a nice job in that uh, in that time trial, but didn't do such a strong job. I mean, it, it wasn't such a dominant performance, and, and I think more importantly, his rivals did a nice job as well. So things were relatively close, still heading into that final mountain stage on Saturday. Uh, Roglic had a comfortable lead, but not one that was completely unassailable, and uh, Richard Carpas did a nice job of uh, attacking in the in the final few kilometers of the Alto de la Covatia climb, and for yeah, four or five, six minutes there towards the end of the race, in, the, in that last closing kilometers, it, it was not really clear. I mean, was, was Karpas going to get enough time to close the gap? Uh, but Primoz Roglic, with some help from uh, some rivals and, and some other teams maybe, uh, managed to stop the proverbial bleeding, and uh, although Karpas did gain some time, Roglic held on to his lead by 24 seconds over Karpas and uh, Hugh Carthy, uh, was in third place, uh, gained a couple of uh, seconds as well, but not enough to overhaul Roglic, who, yeah, ultimately won the race. So we got a pretty uh, pretty entertaining battle, I, I think, and, and it was yet another Grand Tour, yet another, the, thir- the third Grand Tour of three this year that really came down to the wire, and, uh, and the race was decided by, you know, relatively uh, very few seconds. 24 seconds is not a lot of time in a Grand Tour, particularly not recently. We've seen a lot of much more decisive wins uh, so yeah, thir- third of three very close Grand Tours. It was a good one, and Roglic held on to win. I kind of feel like uh, Roglic has to he owes a bit of debt of gratitude to to Movistar in the finale there, uh, because of Enric Mas's sort of proximity to the podium. Movistar was came into that final stage, and and they clearly had a plan. Uh, they sent a bunch of riders up the road. They sent you know, Mark Soler bridged across at one point. And Solaire was the one who put in a real big dig in that final, what, kilometer, kilometer and a half into a pretty nasty headwind, basically for Moss, but because Moss was riding with Roglic, Roglic got to sort of sit on as well. And that could have been the difference right there. I mean, Roglic did not look amazing. He was losing time to Carapaz. Carapaz looked stronger, but Roglic had that brief pull from from Solaire and also caught uh, Hofstede, who his own teammate, who had been in the breakaway as well, so another another good bit of tactics there from Jumbo Visma to stick a rider in the breakaway that they could then pull back because we saw for the first time in a while Roglic isolated, right? Sepkus pulled as long as he could, but at at one point when I think it was when was it when Carapaz went or when Carthy went when one of when one of his rivals went, Sep basically went, I'm out and just waved yeah, him through. It was Carthy's attack. Yeah, yeah Carthy Carthy put the pressure on and and finally you know. For basically the first time in like three years, Sepkus couldn't hang, you know couldn't <laughs> hang on. Seemingly the first time in three years, uh, and yeah, he was isolated after that. But uh, just the various circumstances towards the end there. I mean, it's funny that Movistar was was pulling it. I don't really think the race was going to be changed one way or the other, whether they pulled or didn't. But I mean, it ended up really for, for, for Henrik Maas at least. Yeah. But it certainly helped Primoz Roglic in the end. It certainly made a difference in the overall standings for everybody else. Yep. So and of course. Movistar won the team classification. Congratulations, Movistar. That's a good point, uh, yeah. Yep. The, the real prize. Yep. Water remains wet. Gravity still pulls things down. Yeah. Movistar has won the team classification for the 47th time in a row. It's 80% of statistics are made up. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Something they didn't like win the Giro cl- team classification, so. Shh, shh. Quiet, quiet. <laughs> That ruins the narrative, Abby. Don't, we're we're sticking with this one. We're sticking with this one. Sorry, uh, keep my facts to myself. Yeah, keep. This is a fact-free podcast. Come on, you know this by now. <laughs> We've been over this. Anyway, a, a, a fantastic end to the Vuelta, which 
it was just a fantastic end to all three grand tours this year. I feel like we got really lucky, right? Or maybe it's not luck. Maybe it's a function of the of the of the season and the way thing, things were compressed and everything was weird. And I mean, we had all three grand tours finishing with first and second under a minute from each other, right? And like last last stage or penultimate stage uh, changes of leadership in two of them. And I, I'm, tr- I'm struggling to think of a year in which all three Grand Tours finished in a, in, in a way that was this exciting and this fantastic. And, you know, we, we usually get one or two fantastic Grand Tours or Grand Tour finales, I should say, in a given season. The fact that we got all three, I mean, this is going to be a Grand Tour year to remember if you are a hardcore Grand Tour bike racing fan. Yeah, I went back and looked at the the margins this year, <clears throat> going into that final weekend versus margins in, in uh, previous years, and you had to go pretty far back to get something like this. Uh, it's, it, this was th- these were the closest Grand Tours going into the the final two stages uh, across all three. That combined margin between first and second place, that number was as was as small as it has been in a decade. Uh, and we've had some great Grand Tours in the last decade. We've had some very close. Uh, and the Vuelta in particular, we've had some really close Vueltas. Uh, Tom Dumoulin and, and Fabio Aru battling it out in uh, 2015, I think that was. Chris Horner, Vincenzo Nibali, that was really close. Uh, but across all three Grand Tours, that margin of, of first to second in the, into the last two days, this, this year the, the total was, was tighter than anything since uh, all the way back in 2010. And first of all, that's a long time to go, so it's already quite impressive. And second of all, some of those results from 2010 haven't quite stood the test of time. Uh, and so this, you know, I, I think this is the, the, the closest the, the all three Grand Tours have been across, across the board, you know, in this era, we'll say. Uh, and, and hopefully the results of these Grand Tours don't go the way of the results of Ezequiel Mosquera, etc. cetera. Um, but yeah, that was the last time we had anything this, this close. And, and uh, that was with results that have since been stripped uh, in, in some cases. You know, Dane, we just said this was a fact-free podcast, and then you just threw all that out there, and you're really, take, you're uh, really taking us yeah, yeah, brand point. here at the moment. <laughs> I retract. I retract all of that. Yeah. <laughs> really, really just off on a tangent. I don't know what you're doing. Yeah, Dane, and, Dane I, and I are actually going to break from this podcast and start our own podcast that's called Cycling Facts. <laughs> yep. Yep. It'll be our facts. Uh, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> We'd be sad to lose you. Uh, I want to move on to the Madrid Ceratizit Challenge, which changed names somewhat late, Abby. Uh, this wrapped up over the weekend as well and was also the, the final sort of major event on the women's calendar. What happened? The final day looked fantastically exciting. Lots of time bonuses and, and seconds won and lost and things like that. Yeah, the final day of the Ceratizit Challenge by La Vuelta was super exciting, um, mostly because of the time bonuses and the race was really aggressive. This was the sixth edition of the Madrid Challenge. The first three were just circuit races in downtown Madrid. And then in 2018, they added a team time trial. In 2019, they added an individual time trial. And this year, they added a third stage, an opening road race, won by Lorena Wiebes. So Lorena Wiebes was holding the GC overall after the first stage. The second stage was won by Lisa Brunauer, the time trial. She won it by one second over Elisa Longaborghini. After time bonuses on the first stage, Lisa Brunauer was 10 seconds in front of Lisa Longaborghini in the overall. Ellen Van Dyke was 13. Annemiek Van Vluten was 17. And Lorena Wiebes was 18. So basically it was just, you know, there was a bunch of 
bunch of writers behind that that were really close in time and with the following day every other lap of the 17 race course so a total of eight bonus sprints that included five two and one bonus seconds for the first three across the line so that made the last day totally insane there was a ton of attacking none of it really got away because the gc riders are also quite good sprinters and they were going for the points especially lorena Weebus um and lisa brenauer she was up there a ton at one point Elisa Langaborghini was off the front for like 40k and she took three bonus bonus sprints so at the end of the day it was Lisa Brenauer who managed to hold on to her overall lead she rode incredibly well the entire three days and especially on the final day defending against Lorena Weebus who's a pretty incredible sprinter Elisa Longoborghini ended up second overall and then Lorena Weebus clawed her way back up from fifth to be third overall and round out the podium so that was the final of the women's world tour which is now over for the year and yeah the last day um was won by Elisa balsamo from valcar travel and silence uh also which was a really amazing sprint and she's quite an up-and-coming rider she's 27 and she's very very promising so her sprint finish was incredible and she also had her teammate up there with her so yeah Pretty pretty all right race from the Sarah Tizit challenge. What if they did this at the end of Grand Tours? They did like a circuit race with five seconds on the line every single time around. How great would that be? I would love that. It would be super. Well, it, what would probably end up happening is all the GC teams would bring a sprinter and they would just go try to eat up all the points the entire time, and the, the GC guys would never actually do any sprinting. But at least on the yeah. men's side, I should say, uh, because the men's side is it's just different from the women's side. You don't have riders with so such a, a sort of wide breadth of, of skill sets generally, a little more specialized. Uh, but it would still be fantastic, I think, just for the chaos that would ensue, right? I mean, if you're talking about tries, like ways to try to spice up Grand Tour racing, which granted, we just talked about how maybe it doesn't need all that much spicing up at the moment. But if you were to try to spice it up, man, what a fun way to do it that would be. Just take, like you said, take a track event, basically, like almost like a points race, but give it, do time bonuses instead of points. And uh, having raced a fair number of points races in my, in my career, it, It'd be super hard. <laughs> it would be insanely hard. Really, really difficult and just full of chaos and, and excitement. I think it would be awesome. I mean, you could throw time bonuses like on top of a short climb and have it be a circuit race with a short climb with time bonuses at the top of the climb. And that would be that would be insane. I mean, I think if a Grand Tour were to throw a f- completely like pancake flat circuit race into the final day of their Grand Tour with like five seconds on every other lap, because it was every other lap in the women's race. So there was really no breaks for them. I mean, in between each sprint lap, they had people were trying to attack and get off the front and the sprinters, which were also the GC riders were just shutting everything down. And I think if you were to throw that into a race like some of the gangly climber types would probably have a thing or two to say if you just had bonus seconds at on at the around the um the arc de triomphe on the champs every lap how great would that be no it'd be chaos it'd be sweet <laughs> the well it would be the ideal race to do this because previously they've talked about doing strange things for the race as well like uh, i presume it's i think like 15 years ago or something like that 12 years ago they talked about splitting the race into a one week and a two week race so the first week you had you were, you were 
I think it was like seven riders per team, six riders per team, but more teams. And then it was a, a whittling down process. If you if you got into the, I don't know, top 18 of the teams, for the end of that first week, you were allowed to bring extra riders in. And then the teams that didn't make the cut got the boot. It was like, was, this is like, I think, yeah, 12 years ago, they talked about doing something similar to that. I mean, like you do, you sort of start stepping down this pathway to Hammer Series, right? Which we've sort of seen is not really super effective in that it actually does create sort of very interesting racing in its little bubble, but there's no history, there's no tradition, people don't understand it, it was too complicated. You do sort of start stepping down toward that that path, but I think there's, you know, there's still things that can be learned and tried, you know, that, that, that could help spice things up, that just... The, the the Grand Tours have changed considerably since they first started, right? I mean, let's not forget that early Tours de France were were points-based. They weren't even time-based. And, you know, so we have had these sort of large shifts in the way that bike racing actually happens a couple different times throughout the history of the sport. And, you know, maybe this is maybe this is time for another a bit of experimentation. I, I mean, I missed the Madrid Challenge on Sunday, but just editing your report, Abby was like I wanted it made me want to go back and watch the replay right because it sounded like there was so much that had happened there was so much on the line like every five minutes that sounds like a pretty good way to end a grand tour to me granted the GC riders would hate it they would absolutely despise that idea but then again I don't think it should really be up to them because we're the ones that have to watch <laughs> I mean you say that the Hammer series didn't work, but I have like this mental image burned into my head for the rest of my life of Teo Gegenhart sprinting full gas on his TT bike at the end of the True. race because it came down to like whoever crossed the line first in the team time trial. And that was like, I remember watching that and just being like, holy crap, this is the future of bike racing because it was so cool. But yeah, you're right. Like the whole climbers points and sprinters points were all very, very confusing. And I mean, just writing that report, Kaylee, and like trying to keep track of who was who, like was what. Like, I felt so f- bad for the people at the Madrid Challenge trying to figure out like who got what bonus seconds and keep it all straight because it was, oh my gosh, it was a nightmare. And I was writing it all down and stuff, and Tom's was just laughing at me because he was like, "You're never gonna, <laughs> you failed math. You're never gonna get it." Before we move on from the racing over the weekend, I do want to return briefly to the Vuelta. And the podium that we had there and sort of what what this means going into 2021 and beyond. Uh, we've had a number of, of sort of odd podiums or at least unexpected podiums over the last couple months with all three Grand Tours. I think Roglic is kind of the only one that was maybe fully expected. Carapaz a little bit. It's obviously already won a Giro. Uh, but a lot of sort of newer names up there. Dane, what's your sort of analysis of... of that final Vuelta podium and, and kind of what it means for GC battles going forward. Yeah, I think for Roglic, it's a, it's a, it's it's a, he met expectations in a way that he kind of, I think morally kind of needed to. I I don't know. I I feel like there was there was chatter, there's talk about Roglic in the third week of a Grand Tour that isn't really deserved. Uh, he did win the Vuelta last year. I think he was fine in the last week of his Tour de France. He just Tadej Pogacar was amazing. Um, but there were people saying things like that. And the fact that he was able to hold on and win this Vuelta, uh, he's got to be happy about that. Uh, that that kind of gets a proverbial monkey off the back, and that, that's probably good for him. 
Um, his team showed again that they're extremely strong. Uh, Sepp Kuss, I think, coming out of this race is just another example of how strong he is. And I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm everybody's wondering, you know, at what point is he going to get his own chances? Um, and that's that's exciting. he keeps saying Everybody he doesn't want him. So, yeah, um, Alberto Contador said before every race that he was sick or hurt. Uh, <laughs> people say things. Uh, people say things. We'll see. Uh, I, I would like to see him get some chances, even in the one week races. And I think that that's not too much to ask. We might see that. Um, and then for Carpas, I, I think that was a it was a big result for him in that uh, his Giro win. You know, I, I don't know how that re- how well that resonated with a lot of people. I, I feel like he came out of that and he still wasn't that big a name for a lot of people. I think particularly in the Anglo world, Anglo speaking world, um, where you know coming from Movistar and having won the Giro and uh, you know not not having been a big presence at the Tour, and then this year at the Tour he, he didn't he wasn't really a GC factor. So for him to be this close with Roglic, I mean it was extremely tight. Um, and he, I feel like Carpaz kind of. He looked better at the end, honestly. Yeah. yeah, he he kept getting better, and I feel like he really made a statement about his place at the team, uh, a team that is, is you know is bidding farewell to Chris Froome. Gary Thomas is getting up there, so they they're really looking to their sort of next generation of riders with Egan Bernal. They've got Theo Gegenhardt now, and I think Carpaz needed to he needed a result like this. Yeah, he didn't win, but he was so close that I feel like he he's really you know, marked his place with this team. And I think he's going to continue to get big opportunities because of the way that he performed uh, at this Welter. And then Hugh Carthy, he's a rider who's been talked about as a GC type for a while now. Um, And this was really his first big GC result kind of period. I mean, he was on the podium at the Colorado Classic a couple years ago, which was cool, you know, for us here in Colorado. Uh, But in terms of really big races, uh, top-tier stage races, this was kind of the first one that he had done a whole lot at in the general classification, and it happened to be a Grand Tour versus two Grand Tour winners, uh, and he was really close at the end. Yeah, I mean, the last time we saw anything like this from him was actually the Giro that Carapaz won, and on places like the Mortarolo and that particular Giro, Hugh was super impressive. Uh, it was him and Dabrowski at that point, both on EF, and they were kind of trading 10th, 11th on GC back and forth, and they were both quite close uh, on sort of the big key mountain stages. They lost time elsewhere, but you could tell that that Carthy could climb with the absolute best in the race when it really mattered. Uh, and he's just sort of his trajectory has just continued upward, right? Because I mean, he he lost to lost to Carapaz in that Giro by minutes, right? And now he's just behind Carapaz in this year's Vuelta. His trajectory is pointed in the right direction. He needs a very specific type of course, I think, to really excel. I mean, he did do a a time trial that was better than we thought it would be at this Vuelta, quite a bit better than we thought it would be. But it still wasn't like amazing. He's still, you know, he's still going to lose time to Garrett Thomas in a time trial, for example. It, it was it was a time trial with a hill at the yeah. end, so that that leaves some question. It, I, he did a really great job in that time trial i think it was really impressive but it's hard to yeah hard to say what that means for the future when there was a really steep climb at the end yeah you know how's he really going to do on a pan flat time trial because we know that the Roglic's and the pogatras and the gary thomas's they're going to thrive on the pan flat time trials compared to some of these climbers like carthy right like carthy's not going to win next year's tour de france right if you look at 58 kilometers time trial kilometers in next year's tour de france just not going to happen right and he's that's just a reality of the type of rider that he is he's He's too, frankly, he's too tall and he's not aerodynamic enough. Like, there's just sort of, there's just math that's in his way. Uh, you know, it, it takes a lot for guys shaped that way to get really low and really aero. I, there are some exceptions. Like, Chris Froome's a pretty tall guy and he gets pretty aero and wins, wins a bunch of time trials. But still, uh, Hugh is kind of a different 
level of gangly, I would say, from from even Chris Froome. And I say that, you know, with with massive respect for for Hugh Carthy. I had a chance to sit down with him um, in that Giro I was talking about, the one that Carapaz won two years ago, last year. Um, it was last year. And got in the bus. It's obviously pre-COVID. Uh, got in the bus hung out with you for about half an hour and, and had a good chat with him and i'm actually going to see if i can dig out that audio maybe we'll run it in, a, in an upcoming podcast it's somewhere um we ran a story at the time i was super impressed by his uh just his attitude it, it strikes me as actually quite similar to those who are close to pogacar um it, it's like a it's a it's a serious and and noticeable confidence in himself but also like this sort of realism that i think a lot of top top athletes kind of struggle with is like i'm going to take this step by step and wherever i am is where i am and he's pretty happy with that uh that's what he was talking about at the giro he's like you know i'm in in 10th 11th of the giro i'm climbing with the best in the world i know this is the next step for me toward this final goal which is like he thinks he can win a grand tour right uh which this well, to absolutely prove, I think he can win a, a Grand Tour in the right scenario. But yeah, I, I just I, I always think that that's super important, right? Particularly for this type of rider, for the GC rider, to have your head in the right place is so important. You know, we've seen it with some of the uh, American stars, for example, in the last ten years or so, uh, Tolansky, T.J. Van Garderen, who just never seem to have their head in the right place, and as a result, super talented, but sort of maybe never fulfilled it, and. Hugh strikes me as one of those riders who has his head in the right place and as a result will be able to get the most out of himself physically. Also adds uh, to the number of people from the north of England that will be in and around, you know, the big races in the years to come. Shoddy stoked. Which I'm sure is hell, really, really hell great. Hell yeah, there's, there's a couple actually from up in the northwest uh, in the pellet on this year. Proper comers. But I think, I think the northern factor does come into play uh, with Hugh a little bit because we are thought of or, or I should say that the North people from the North are thought of being a, a little bit more working class a little bit more grounded um, and breaking out of the North West breaking out of the North of the UK is difficult it's not on the map it's not yeah it's not like being in London where you've got a lot of facilities yeah, admittedly you've got the Manchester Velodrome, which is like, yeah, the, the hub of British cycling. Or oh, is it still? I can't even remember because they've got the, an Olympic Velodrome now. But yeah, the North West's always been a very sort of humble area, working man's area. And I do think that comes into play with Carthy. It's You're never, you're never bigging yourself up in the North West. You do what you do, get on with it, sort of keep your head down and uh, is- just, just go on your path, which he has. Can I, can I request a translation? Uh, is bigging yourself up, is that like talking yourself up? Yeah, yeah. It, you've, there's, there's not a lot of arrogance up in the northwest, which I've, uh, up in the north, I say, yeah. There's no sort of Just arrogance. Sure. There's, no, <laughs> yeah. there's no arrogance. There's no... Um, people stand behind you, but they don't expect great things. But when you do do great things, people will, will be very proud of you. And... Um, keep you grounded at the same time and I think that's yeah I think that's definitely going to be sort of the attitude Hugh has and the people around him from back home you never forget where you come from all right let's move on from the Vuelta Grand Tours Hugh Carthy 
bonus seconds, etc. And jump over to Chloe Digert, who had that massive and horrible crash in the world's time trial. I'm sure most of our listeners will have seen that. Uh, hopefully avoided the photos because the photos were, were quite gruesome. Uh, but she's she's got a long road uh, to recovery ahead of her. Abby, you chatted with her, right? Yeah, so um, actually the huge news today is that Chloe has just signed a four-year deal with Canyon Stram. Um, so she's been on the U.S. 2020, now 2024 team for quite a while. And that team is has been really focused on her the past couple of years. And she's been very comfortable on felt bikes. And, and actually, the original plan was that she would race the Olympics for 2020 and then race in Europe the next year. So she signed the four-year deal before the Olympics were postponed. And she couldn't really change it. Um, with with the Olympics being postponed. So now she's riding on Canyon Stram next year until 2024. She's really, really excited about it. So I chatted with her about her new team, how she feels about this move, and also her equipment for next year. And then, yeah, a little bit about her recovery, which she's, she's pretty much just taking day to day at the moment. Let's listen in. So, firstly, congratulations on your new team. No, thank you. What was your decision moving from um, 2020 to Canyon Stram? Because you've been with 2020 for so long, and and you're really part of kind of the fabric of what makes up the team. But in the press release, um, the team 2020 manager, Nicola Cranmer, said she was really excited for you to make this move. So, So how did this come about? Yeah, well, um, I mean, really the Olympics um, kind of screwed everything up, but uh, from kind of how it was from the beginning, you know, after the Olympics was going to be the year, so 2021, no matter what, was going to be the time for me, uh, it was always part of the plan was to go to a European team, um, you know, and the, the Olympics being postponed until next year kind of put a damper on things and um, you know, it's, uh, it's hard and, you know, Nicola's still going to have a team next year, but this was always the plan from the beginning. Um, you know, and that, that's the thing. Everybody knew it, Nicola, you know, and the support never changed. And it's just, you know, I, I have set goals and things that I want to accomplish. And, um, you know, everybody knew that going into it. And so that's why there's, there's no ill will towards anybody. And this is just, you know, it's just checking off the boxes to what my goals are, you know? You're still targeting the track pretty heavily next year, and the team is going to accommodate you racing on the track, correct? Yeah, yeah. So I, uh, being with Canyon SRAM over any other team, um, they had, obviously, you know, with Pauline and her schedule and, um, you know, the leniency that I would have to be able to accomplish my goals. And that, that's, that's, you know, the biggest thing for me is for as long as I want to race, I want to have fun and, you know, I want to be able to accomplish everything that I want to accomplish. And, you know, they're giving me freedom and the tools to be able to do that. And no other team was as accommodating as what Canyon SRAM was. And, um, you know, just, I mean, even on the little things, like I know it's stupid, but, you know, being able to wear my Red Bull helmet, my pink shoes, if I want to have pink wheels or pink this, pink that, or be able to keep my coach, you know, and um, that's, you know, one of the biggest reasons why Canyon SRAM was the best fit for me. Do you know any of the girls on the team already or have any of them reached out to you? Is there anyone you're really excited to work with? 
Yeah, you know, I've uh, I've been in contact with a few of them. I know some of them from the track. At, um, you know, uh, you know Alexis Ryan, obviously the American. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I'm excited to to be on the team. You know, I've uh, I've always admired Pauline. I don't know how much I'll be seeing her since she's been doing um, a lot of the mountain biking stuff, but Pauline's always been someone that I've looked up to and thought was really cool. So you know, to be on her team is is uh, going to be really cool and. You know, Cassia, Lisa Klein, everybody. I'm just, I, I'm, I'm really honored to be a part of such a fun and pretty program. So, <laughs> <laughs> and you, you've said already that next year is going to be a huge target. The Olympics is a huge target for you, and that's kind of mm-hmm. the main goal. But you've signed a four-year contract, so I'm assuming that going into 2022, it's going to be a road program that you're focused on. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and, and again, with all my goals. Um, I like to be realistic. So, um, you know, obviously next year with my, with my leg, it's, there's not much I can do except focus on just preparing for the games itself. Um, so 2022, looking forward to doing some of the classics and, and, you know, what the team needs me to do things for, you know, but, um, really like, yeah, I'm going in with, with goals to, you know, I still not super familiar with all the classics and all the races and stuff. So obviously I have to look more into that, but you know, the goals, the goals were to win some, so I want to figure out which ones I want to win. (laughs) Awesome. And I think, um, probably the number one question that everyone wants to know, which how is the rehab going on your leg? Um, you know, it's going, uh, every day is a, a new day and it's, it's difficult. It's such an uncommon injury that, you know, I mean, as of now, the muscles should, I mean, obviously you have a general idea. People have a general idea of like how long it takes muscles to heal and this and that, you know, and, but, um, you know, for the most part, they, they couldn't give me a straight answer if I, Oh, you can start bending it now, or you can, you can put weight on it now. Oh, I don't know how much bend you can put it. I don't know when you can start riding. I don't, you know, so it's so uncommon that, you know, we have so many different opinions and they're talking to different trauma doctors or, and then it's hard because, the doctors that are here weren't the ones that did the surgery. So nobody really knows. And we have an MRI and we're getting those sent to um, the people at Red Bull and, and the team doctors and things. And so, you know, we're starting to get everything under control and I'll have probably another couple weeks here in Indiana before I go back home to Boise for a little bit to just kind of recuperate. And then looks like I'll probably be heading down to Santa Monica to the Red Bull headquarters and continue first phase or second phase of my recovery. Awesome. That's great to hear. Yeah. Um, as far as your equipment going forward with Canyon Stram, I know that time trialing is a huge deal for you. Obviously you yeah. were the world champion last year and, um, and that's going to be a goal in Tokyo, correct? Yep. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm, um, really excited to be, um, you know, using the Canyon bikes. I've had a chance to ride one, a time trial bike and, um, you know, it feels good. It feels fast. So I'm looking forward to that. And, um, you know, and also, you know, how amazing the team and, and the company is, they don't have a track bike developed yet. So, um, they are, you know, okay with the fact that I'm going to be using a super bike until they develop a track bike. They're mm-hmm. allowing me to use my super bike, uh, the felt super bike in the Olympic games or in, until, you know, the bike is developed. So that's, um, also very, huge positive for, um, you know, another reason why I chose the team. Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me and, and yeah, good luck. Yeah. Thank you so much. Bye. 
Before we move on to today's Nerd Alert, I want to thank those who have joined Velo Club and made it possible for us to expand not only our race coverage, but also our podcast network, videos, all sorts of stuff. Velo Club helps us cover cycling in the way that we want to. So if you haven't signed up, please consider joining. It's 79 US dollars a year, and you are then directly responsible for helping us grow Cycling Tips and all the content that we produce, including content that is not monetizable, that is not necessarily commercially viable. Uh, This is what allows us the freedom to produce things in the way that we want to produce them, to to create the, the editorial that we want to create. And so as a thank you, if you sign up before the end of the year, we'll send you our Cycling Tips annual a collection of stories and pieces paired with stunning photos as always it's an awesome basically a coffee table book i absolutely love it and if you sign up to velo club before the end of the year you get it head over to cyclingtips.com slash sign up sign up for velo club Support this podcast, support our other podcasts, support all of the independent editorial here at Cycling Tips. And we say thank you. Appreciate it. Now, it's time for Nerd Alert. 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 All right. Time for this week's Nerd Alert segment of the Cycling Tips podcast. What are we talking about today, James? You, you, you've got some extra safety gear on for today's podcast. More than usual, I would say. Well, I mean, we've, I, I'd say that we've gotten progressively more animated during our podcast recordings. And, you know, like, I, I'm, I'm recording in the garage. There's a lot of the kind of like sharp, pointy things in here. I just, I just kind of wanted to play it safe, you know? <laughs> you look like a hamster. So there's no, no other reason for you to wear that helmet no, 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 right no, no. now. Oh, I guess there is one other reason. So, yeah, I mean... <laughs> The, it, it came to my attention recently, you know, so we have this private uh, Slack channel for our Velo Club members, and one of our members posted uh, a link to um, a French design studio that had come up with this pretty interesting concept for a full-face road helmet that uh, that I was intrigued by. And, oh, Keel, you get the sourpuss look on, my, on your face there. <laughs> Now, I, I certainly have not been riding around thinking to myself, like, oh, I wish I had a full-face road helmet. But, I mean, there have been a rash of facial injuries in pro road cycling um, that have resulted in a whole bunch of lost teeth, among other facial injuries. And, you know, th- there have definitely been a, a notable handful over the years, but, you know, who knows how many there have been otherwise that we don't hear about. And it kind of just got me thinking. I mean, again, this is just a concept. It's from a French studio called Studio Accent. And, oh, Kale, you can't, you can't keep a straight face right now. I can't. I can't. Because <laughs> you have a downhill helmet on. This is, not a, this is a trail helmet. This isn't even a downhill helmet. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, um, but it, it just got me thinking. Like, you know, we, they're, they're, with the renewed focus on safety, or I should say a little bit more of renewed attention on safety in the Pro Peloton, it just got me wondering, like, you know, could a full-face helmet ever be utilized in road cycling? Like, you know, would it ever work? And, you know, what, if it did, what would that look like? Kayla, you're having some, some issues there, I, I see. <laughs> Doesn't fit. <laughs> I can't hear anything you're saying. That's great. 
The best part about James wearing this helmet for everybody who's watching is we recorded a good 40 minutes before we got to this segment and he wore it the whole time. Nearly the, <laughs> I, I did take it off just for a couple of minutes. I had to adjust something, but yeah, I, I've been wearing it for nearly the whole time. It's almost to prove a point, really. Well, so as, as I was trying to put my uh, full face helmet, my mountain bike full face, full face helmet on, I missed everything you just said at the end there, but I'm just, I'm just going to assume that you were continuing to talk about this uh, this sort of French prototype that was sent over our way or this this design project. Uh, I wanted to sort of start this off with kind of a bit of a a round table here of, you know, we've got four of us from very sort of different parts of cycling, I would say. Um, you know, we've got Abby, who's a retired pro. We've got Shadi, who is was basically almost a pro and raced some crazy stuff in crazy parts of Europe for a very long time. And we've got the two of us, James, who are, you know, I think safe to say almost mountain bikers first. Uh, and so I've spent quite a bit of time in full face helmets. So I, I want to just sort of start maybe with Shoddy and ask, Shoddy, would you ever wear something like this? I, it's difficult. I would say yes, because I've got experience with landing on my face and, won't be able to see because the camera's not very good on my computer but i've got a big scar just underneath me my nose and then my teeth are kind of very wonky at the front where i ground them down uh in a when my fork snapped my steerer tube snapped oh. uh while i was climbing oh. uh this is back in 2001 i think <laughs> um we were going very slow so yeah i took Gives the chills i took the full brunt on my face don't remember any of it apparently the, it was a, a circuit of like s seven eight kilometers um and the peloton stopped continued rode around for two or three more laps without racing with me just lying at the side of the road unconscious so uh i was in hospital wait for hold on they just days. left you there on the side of the road and just kept racing for a couple of laps no 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 they di they didn't they didn't race they stopped the the riders just rolled around keeping cool keeping warm uh while the ambulance did their thing with me um so yeah i was i'd hate to think how long on the side of the road i was i don't remember anything from the day apart from having my face stitched up um and then i'd know very little from the rest of the other day so i would say yes i would wear a, a full face road helmet because also it looks like that accident possibly caused me to have epilepsy as well so i'd i'd swap epilepsy for a full face helmet any day of the week yeah i mean that's a that's a that's a pretty i think easy case to make when you've been through something like that uh abby you've, you've never had a crash quite that bad would would you still consider you know we uh, we almost can't define it as a full face it's like a bar it, yeah, I, I should clarify a little yeah. bit i mean we, we're describing this as a full face and that's obviously kind of what i'm wearing right now but this concept that studio accent has put together i mean again this is just a concept there, there's not like a physical prototype and there there would be a whole lot of design work and engineering work that would really have to be done for something like this to really be a product but essentially what you have is I mean the the concept that they put together it, it almost kind of looks like a like a pock helmet that they just sort of stuck an additional chin bar on um, and the chin bar is pretty minimal it, it is not designed to like kind of shield your entire face but uh, the concept is mainly just that you know if you were to crash and were about to land on your face that the brunt of the impact would be taken by 
the chin bar, which would then transfer energy to the rest of the shell to which it's attached. Um, again, all sorts of engineering and design challenges that would have to be overcome, but that, that's the basic concept. I mean, the idea is just that, you're, that the lower part of your face would just not be completely exposed in a crash. Right, right. So, Abby, yes or no? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Would you, would you consider wearing one of these if you're racing still? You know, that's a, actually a really tough question because I did have not as bad a crash as Shoddy, but my worst crash when I was racing was um, in the Tour of Britain. I hit my head so hard that I actually lost my helmet. So the mechanic came running over with spare wheels to because I was just like lying in a ditch and I sat up and he was like, um, I guess you don't need a wheel. And I was like, I need a helmet. And the doc, the med car, which had seen the crash was like, no, she's going to the hospital. She, she hit the ground really hard. Um, and I ended up with a really bad concussion that, that was pretty bad. And I think if it had had a, if my helmet had had a chin bar, I probably wouldn't have lost it. You know what? This is actually like kind of reminding me of skiing and helmets because like in a slalom helmet, you have a chin bar. So What's really interesting about this and, and like skiing, for example, is I feel like I'm, I'm kind of old school with skiing and I only ski in a hat, but the ski helmets are like way more heavy duty than a, than a cycling helmet. And I feel like if you were to crash skiing, the impact might not be as bad depending on where you crash is like, if you crash on the road, it, it can, it pretty much always can be pretty bad. Like you're a body hitting pavement. So it sounds silly to me the full face road helmet but it also if you actually think about it for a second it's like well that makes sense i mean yeah i mean you look at the sort of the the sort of impacts that you could have skiing versus road riding or honestly even skiing or road uh, skiing versus road riding versus mountain biking i mean i've definitely crashed much more frequently mountain biking than road riding and i mean Kaylee, I think you can agree that a lot of those crashes are, you know, you kind of slide out or like, you know, you sort of like just sort of high side a little bit. And, you know, oftentimes those speeds are lower. There's, you know, the things that you might hit oftentimes are softer than pavement. Like it's like dirt or, you know, hopefully not a very big tree, something like that. I mean, certainly around here, there's a lot of rocks. But when you crash... Small on, trees are soft. Yeah. But when you crash on the road, I mean, it is pavement. Um, and you know, there is potentially gravel racing now, but I mean, we're in, in the context of pro road racing, it's pavement or, you know, all sorts of other hard things like concrete and metal and, and, you know, barriers and that sort of thing that, you know, are basically immovable objects that your face could potentially be flying into. And, you know, again, I, I should, I should point out, I mean, this, the idea of having some sort of chin bar or full, or full face helmet doesn't really change anything as far as you know traumatic brain injuries or concussions that sort of thing I mean, that that's not what this thing is designed to do i mean the idea would just be to protect your your face and like kind of like your 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 jaw area your mouth essentially um i mean th there's all sorts of impediments to this sort of idea actually getting implemented one for example let's say this microphone is a water bottle it's kind of hard to kind of hard to drink right now Right. So like that, that, that's something that would have to be that would have to be dealt with. Um, you know, there are the issues of weight and ventilation. And, you know, certainly, you know, I mean, let's face it. I mean, cycling is a fashion sport. Um, so there are issues with, you know, how things would look, um, you know. But so, yeah, there's all sorts of questions. But I just I just have to wonder. We got all sorts of comments on the article that I wrote from people who had said, like, you know, I had this crash, you know, such and so time ago and, you know, landed on my face, knocked out two 
two teeth, knocked out whatever. I mean, th there are all sorts of people who have had crashes in just amateur cycling who have said that if something like this existed, they would have considered it. Well, three out of the four of us here have had crashes where we knock teeth out or chip teeth or something like that, right? Like, you know, James, yours wasn't on a bike, but <laughs> but you're still dealing with it. Uh, Shoddy, you had this horrible crash. Uh, I, when I was younger, rode my bike into a pile of leaves and a stick went into the front wheel and I whacked my face into the concrete, like just before I even knew what had happened. Uh, I was lucky that I kept the upper half of my teeth because I had braces at the time. <laughs> And they just knocked the bottom off. But it's still super gross. You know, I think we've all... This is a pretty common occurrence. And the interesting thing to me about this debate is, like, it kind of... I wasn't really around for the initial helmet debate, right? Because I was born in 1988, and that it was that's about when it was happening. James, you might be able to speak to this better. But, like, in the early days of helmets in road racing they were kind of looked at in a similar way. Like this, what's this goofy hat I'm going to put on my head. I've been, you know, we've been riding without helmets for a century, basically, you know, X, Y, Z, these, you know, bad things didn't happen. Uh, but now it's, it's just totally normal. And in fact, this sort of chin bar thing is less obtrusive than a helmet, right? A lot less intrusive than a helmet. We've already taken the big step to put the silly hat on, right? We're already there. Adding a little chin bar does almost nothing to the, you know, performance of the helmet or the comfort of the helmet or anything like that. All it does is, according to modern style, make you look a bit silly, right? And so that's, that's kind of, you look great, James. You look great. <laughs> what are you, saying? you should just rock up to the next, you know, road group ride in, in that thing. I think people would be like, yeah, I'm definitely riding next to that guy <laughs> for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's just these—it's these cultural things and these style things that are in road cycling that are really hard to overcome. But this one, when you actually step back and think about it, is is kind of a small step, right, compared to the step of putting the silly hat on, uh, which, particularly in the early days of helmets, didn't look great. Were super hot. Were pretty heavy. These days, helmets are much lighter, much faster, much more comfortable. We, we're all used to them. Uh, you know, you can argue all day whether whether uh, you know you should be wearing them for commuting. These are like, we're going to ignore those arguments for now. Uh, most recreational cyclists, you know, roadies, the traditional roadie, gravel rider, whatever, is going to wear a helmet most of the time, and we're all used to it. And so, this little addition is just doesn't seem like a massive, like a massive thing to me. And it would just take normalization, really. It, it would. I mean, again, we are cycling is just just this very odd sport in the sense that, you know, road cycling in particular, you do subject yourself to an awful lot of risk in the event of a crash. And in order to kind of maximize the performance of all the other time when you are not crashing, I mean, cyclists basically are wearing essentially next to nothing so as not to impede movement. Um, you know, I think it was Jonathan Botter was talking about, you know, what you know, when he described crashing on a, in a road race to be akin to like, you know, jumping out of a moving car in your underwear, essentially, which is which is very apt, I think. Um, it, it's just a very, very accurate description of what that would be like. It's, I mean, you think about like, when you think about when you think about it that way, it's like I, I, I think it's crazy how many times I've chucked myself out of a car in my underwear. Like I've done that a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's done. So but, I mean, so, you know, when we go out and and get dressed to go for a ride. I mean, essentially what we're doing is we're, we're getting dressed for riding. We're not necessarily getting dressed for crashing. And the helmet, again, like you said, is sort of just more a, a matter of normalization now at this point. I mean, you don't, 
it is getting to the point now where people are at least selecting helmets based more on you know how much safety they're they purportedly provide in the event that you do crash um but again and what i found super interesting about this article was more like i was expecting all sorts of backlash in the comments but it was really remarkable to me how many people at least were in favor of you know maybe not even necessarily this particular rendering essentially that this studio came up with but just the idea of having some sort of additional protection for the lower part of your face um it just showed me that there are a lot more people who are thinking about that sort of thing now and would seriously consider it if it were made so that, you know, yes, you could, it, it could be light and still well ventilated and you could still eat and drink without having to take the thing off, that sort of thing. When, when I was pro racing, it was actually kind of hilarious to me that like I would go to my dentist and my dentist could not believe that I didn't wear a mouth guard when I would race. And he even went so far as to make me a free custom mouth guard. And he was like, please just wear this because I'm worried for you. And I couldn't eat anything or drink really. So it didn't, it didn't work at all. And I was, he was super bummed, but. You got, you got to ask why hasn't any major brand looked into this or at least re released a helmet like this. And it is, it has got to be down to, they know the market and they know people aren't going to wear it because it's an aesthetics thing. And it is, it is sad. It's. Like Kaylee said, back in the, well, I was at school in the 80s when helmets first came out. And yeah, they were ugly as sin. But we've normalised that. So it's only time and brave brands who will be able to normalise a, a, a full face road helmet. Because the technology is there without a shadow of a doubt. There's plenty of good carbon oh, sure. bits and bobs and... Mips and yeah. all that. Like, I'm sure big brands have looked into it and are looking into it. But yeah, it's just it just it's going to take one or two brave brands to throw something out there and really see if the market accepts it or not. The thing that I find almost a little bit troubling is that in all sorts of other sports, when you have an incident where someone either is seriously injured or you know, heaven forbid, dies, then almost without fail, there is some sort of movement to enact some changes to prevent that sort of thing happening again. However, in cycling, we have this thing where, you know, these sorts of injuries happen over and over again and nothing happens. Like there was an incident in Formula One a, a while ago. Um, you know, there was, there was a crash. Um, drivers, the, the car basically just shot off the side of the side of the course at pretty high speed. And uh, the driver's head hit the lower corner of you know, kind of like these, these cherry picker tractor things that they used to, to move cars off the course when, when there's a disabled car on the side of the course. And, you know, because the, it was an open cockpit and the driver's head is completely unprotected aside from the helmet. I mean, he, he was just a massive, massive head injury and, and he died. And because of that formula one cars all now have these things called, you know, they call it halo. It's this huge, you know, titanium carbon fiber reinforced ring that goes it's still open cockpit there's no windshield but it's like this it's like this this ring with this one central rib down the down the front of it to basically keep things from hitting the rider or from hitting the driver's head be it like in a crash if a, if a, if a wheel goes bouncing across across the road that sort of thing so like you know someone died people didn't want it to happen again changes were put in place so that it, it, it hopefully would not happen again and then again, you know, looking back through history, when I when I wrote this article, there are all these examples of riders' faces smashing into the ground, year after year after year, and we never do anything about it. 
Yeah, I mean the one that the one that comes to mind for me is is, is Water Wayland at the Giro, right? I was at that Giro, uh, and that was essentially he died because his face hit the ground at, at such a speed that he, you know, his, his, his basically collapsed. Um, which, who knows if that could have been prevented by a little carbon fiber ring right here. We don't, we don't, we don't really know. Uh, but it's possible. It, you know, it's, it's another, it's another instant, instance that, that, you know, could have saved somebody. And, and that F1 thing, right? Like, even this season, that little halo, they've shown... I forget what the incident was. It was earlier in the season, but the, there was a car that sort of came up on the other car in, in, in a first lap incident. And without that halo, the driver probably would have been hit by the rear tire of the other car, which could have been catastrophic, right? And instead, because they have this halo, because they made a change, uh, the, the both drivers were fine. Everyone like just got out of the car. It's no, no big deal. And... I, I wonder what in cycling, what what it would take in cycling for for things like this to happen. You know, we've talked so much about safety protocols over the last couple months. Uh, you know, you know the the Grunewald and Jakobsen incident in Poland was is a perfect example. Another another incident where somebody you know basically smashed their face in uh, into in that case sort of a metal fencing. There seems to be very little actual forward movement on this and. You know, we, we joke that, like, the, the UCI spends too much time, you know, measuring sock heights and things like that. But there's, like, there's something to that. There's It's a small organization, and they only have so much time and, and resources to police professional cycling. And if they're spending their time measuring time trial bikes and measuring socks, they are not spending their time making sure things are actually safe, right? Uh Dave, you you spoke to I think it was Alan Davis, whose job it is of the UCI to sort of inspect courses and things like that earlier in the year. You, you spoke to him at TDU. Yeah, I, I mean this is something they're trying to do, right? Yeah, they've got like, Alan Davis. Uh, I haven't spoke to him since the TDU. Obviously, things have changed with COVID since then. But yeah, his job was at certain races to drive. I I don't know if it was all the course. I can't remember. I've got the audio somewhere. Drive at least the last. 15, 20, 30k of the race and check for whether the the course was safe, whether the barriers were in the right position, whether there was dangerous potholes, stuff like this. Um, so yeah, they are. They have obviously got him and a few other people, I think, working on making races safer, make looking at that side of things. Uh, whether they're looking at the clothing aspect, whether they're looking at material aspects bikes and all that lot as well is a is another questions but what i was just thinking was talking about the 80s and that lot cycling back then was a super geeky sport it was it was far from what it is now it was let's just say when i was growing up at school in at high school in the the 90s 1500 kids i was the only cyclist that did road cycling there's a couple of lads that did mountain biking but i was the only one that War like at the weekend. Um, so yeah, it was a, a a fringe sport. So you do wonder if it had had still had that trajectory of being a geeky sport where yeah we wore bright colours, we looked weird. Whether that cool aspect had never cut, never had filtered into the sport. Whether brands had gone right, yeah, they look weird already. 
they don't care. <laughs> let's put let's put full face helmets on it. You do wonder if there's a an alternative universe a universe where yeah. I mean, it's, there's something it's to stayed that. Weird. Right? It stayed weird, and we we look weird because we don't care now. It is I mean, it's look, a fashion thing. Let, let's face it. I mean, outside of people who already also ride road bikes and are in kind of traditional lycra kit and that sort of thing. No one else thinks we look cool. We still look weird. That's the that's the thing. We still look weird. We look weird, but it is it's still in it's an accepted sport. It is seen. It's it's the sport now is so far removed from what what it has been in English speaking parts of the world. Like it 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 was never the new golf. It was never you you could never buy a jacket for seven hundred and fifty dollars. Like. True. $70 jacket would have been an expensive jacket back in the day. Even if but now it's seen as a sport where money's thrown at it for the cool factor. Yeah, true. I don't I don't think that it's impossible actually for a helmet like this to look really dorky. Like imagine the Giro helmets that they had a couple years ago where they had the clip-on visor that was like pretty big what if they just like extended that (laughs) you know like what if you had just a helmet that instead of having a bar had like a full full visor in the front and i mean it would make sunglasses um redundant but i mean that would look kind of more techy and a little bit cooler than like having a having a full face helmet like uh i mean james looks pretty cool but he looks super cool yeah i mean we should just sort of Acknowledge how cool James looks right now. <laughs> James looks really cool. I, I don't remember. I don't remember what channel it was in the U.S. It might have been, you know, way back when, like Outdoor Life Network or something. That um, they used to have this sort of commercial um, campaign that would that would include road cycling as sort of like this almost like like warrior like combat sport almost sort of thing. Like they'd show like all these like crashes and all this you know all this action essentially, and they would peg it as sort of like this tough person sport, right? You know, I, I wonder, you know, if this sort of thing were to gain any sort of widespread acceptance, I mean, that, that sort of thing always seems to come from the top, essentially, for, for pro, road rate, pro road racing. And I wonder if this sort of thing would appeal to maybe like, you know, a top sprinter, essentially, because they are the ones arguably who are in the line of fire, essentially, when when things are at, at their most dangerous, most often anyway, in, in road racing. You know, so if like a top sprinter were to wear something like that basically just just to to prepare for the possibility that they would crash into something going you know 80k an hour then at that point you know maybe something like that might gain some more widespread acceptance but i mean it's it's unlikely that it would come from the bottom up i would think yeah i I feel like shoddy's right in that what, what we need here is just like in the early days of helmets, we need a couple brands to kind of like step in and 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 try stuff, right? We'd, we'd, we'd like Bell and uh, Jira was some of the early sort of like aero stuff back in the day, and you know like the, the Le Monde era and things like that. Um, we need some brands to, to just try it, you know. Like Pock is, seems to be at the at the the leading edge of of safety in a lot of ways, and and I'm almost kind of surprised they haven't tried this yet, or maybe they have internally, we just haven't seen it. Uh, you know, we're going to need some brands to just create what they think this thing should look like and then cyclists can kind of decide whether they're going to be okay with it and a huge portion of cyclists won't be okay with it they won't want to use a chin bar just like a huge portion of cyclists did not want to ride in a helmet for a very long time but i think that it is something that could eventually gain some acceptance 
in the same way that on the mountain bike side, you know, f- sort of full faces and, and lighter full faces and like the trail helmet that you're wearing right now and, you know, full faces where the where the face comes off, for example, uh, that's that kind of stuff has become more and more popular because people are riding sort of gnarlier and gnarlier trails and faster and faster and things like that. Road cycling seems like a perfect sort of perfect space for this. And I think it just it's going to take it's going to take a brand being willing to step up, do it, take a bunch of heat from all the traditionalists and push through anyway right that that's what we're kind of waiting for well i think that's enough for us today from the cycling tips podcast and our nerd alert segment thanks everybody for listening as always and if you're watching on youtube because we are putting these on youtube i hope you enjoyed looking at james's full face helmet for the last like hour (laughs) he looks great (laughs) all right we will be back next week on monday as usual enjoy your week enjoy your riding and try not to smash your face into the ground please bye-bye